0: hannah and this is an excuse to eat popcorn so today i learned that it's actually it was hard being a college student and a film student finding the space to record a podcast when you have roommates but i've learned that it's actually hasn't gotten any better so i'm in a random office space right now the AC's blasting i hope that doesn't ruin this episode because I haven't really found anywhere else to record. <laughs> anyway, I'm just gonna dive into things. So, to continue with our spooky chapter, our ghost story chapter, today I'm gonna be talking about the experimental Japanese horror comedy film House, or Houseu, directed and produced by Nobuhiko Obayashi. So, just a little bit more about Obayashi before we talk about the history of the film as a whole. Owayashi started his career as an experimental filmmaker but Densu, an ad agency, was looking for independent filmmakers to direct commercials and so they went to some new filmmakers, up-and-coming filmmakers asking if they would direct some of their commercials and Owayashi said yes and he actually started by making his living on making commercials, and he became known for these really eccentrically directed commercials that eventually featured stars like Catherine Deneuve. House was actually his, in 1977, House was actually his first feature film. It was his directorial debut. So it was distributed by Toho, which is a famous Japanese production and distribution company founded in the 30s by Ichizo Kawayashi as a theater company. But in 1953, they started to expand internationally to target North and Latin American audiences. And they competed with Hollywood films until about the mid-70s. Sales started suffering a little bit. And in the mid-70s, they were desperate to get audiences back in theaters, which is why in 1975 when Jaws was released, sort of this beginning of a shift in Hollywood towards high-concept blockbusters, it was a pivotal moment in cinema. And following this success, Toho, the Japanese studio, asked Obayashi to develop something similar. He developed the ideas for the film with his young daughter because of the unique way that kids see the world and came up with the idea for House. His daughter was responsible for ideas like being attacked by furniture and having her finger, having one one of the girls has her finger caught in a piano at some point. These unique fears that children have that he thought would make an interesting horror film. And then he shared these ideas with Chiho Katsura, who's a screenwriter who developed a script using his daughter's ideas and also using the inspiration of a short story about a woman who puts her granddaughters in a trunk by Walter de la Mer and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and its historical trauma because there is a really anti-war tone and the second world war does haunt the film but we can talk about that later. Toho really liked the script but they ultimately wanted a Toho staff member to direct it Not Obayashi, but a lot of directors thought that it had the potential to be a career-ruining project, and they refused to direct it. However, Obayashi announced the project and started advertising the film before it was even in production using mixed media, like manga, it became a novel and a radio drama. And so the film had somewhat of a following before it was even made, which I think is an interesting thing to think about, especially in this age that we're in where a lot of films sort of become these brands. And after the success of the radio show, Toho finally let Obayashi direct it. It was officially greenlit. It filmed it in two months on one of the biggest Toho sets. The crew was really confused about what they were participating in. He worked with mostly amateur actors, but Kimiko Ikegami, who plays Gorgeous, and Yoko Minamida, who plays her aunt. They were they were known actresses. He worked on the special effects with the cinematographer Yoshitaka Sakamoto, and Oeyashi was really intentional with the unrealistic nature of the special effects, hoping that it would seem as if it were designed by a child and he actually didn't even know how a lot of the effects would turn out until after it was finished and apparently a lot of the effects didn't turn out as he was expecting but I think that's something cool about this the way he was doing it that's not special effects are not really done in that way anymore and then they used some of the music that Asei Kobayashi made for the TV commercials and radio shows but they also looked for some new young up-and-coming artists to contribute to the soundtrack so really this is an exciting this is a really exciting film this is a film that's on the forefront of a lot of things and i think it should just be recognized for its really innovative nature no matter how fucking weird it is because it's weird i remember the first time i watched it was in a film analysis class and i was just like what the fuck is happening but i i honestly laughed really hard and i just it left an impression on me and ever since then I've literally been thinking about it for years. It was released on July 30th, 1977, and it was popular among audiences in Japan, but it mostly- it received mostly negative reviews. If any, it wasn't really highly reviewed. Later, once Janice got the distribution rights, it was released in the US in 2010, so like 30 years later, and it quickly became a cult classic. Most of the reviews upon the American release comment on the film's absurdity but do praise the inventiveness, which I do think is sort of a common review of the film. For example, it was the New York Times critic's pick. And slant magazine called it equal parts brilliant and unwatchable and James Belmont of another magazine called it a mind-boggling mixed-media spectacle it was an exciting film moment upon its release in Japan as Jason Sharp a film critic noted it sort of recaptured younger audiences from TV in a time where Toho was struggling it used TV to re-engage with younger audiences, which of course is a really notable moment. And it's now often considered one on lists of best horror movies, best Japanese film, best horror Japanese films of all time. So again, on this podcast, we only, we bring you the best of the best. Nuts. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm here to give you the historical context of all of it. And I think that is pretty much it for the history. I mean, of course, we could talk for so long about the history of World War II and Japan. I'll stick to that in more of my analysis section. I think that's just sort of the history of the film, where it fits into the Japanese industry, and how it sort of uses this new mixed media strategy i don't even know if it can be considered a strategy at the time but it uses these this new mixed media innovation i guess to find younger audiences and get them engaged in this then absurd attention-grabbing movie that does sort of act like an advertisement it's not all that different from an advertisement yeah so here i am i'm trying to (laughs) make this episode i'm trying to just make everything more engaging because i i listened to i mean obviously i listened to the last episode i was editing it and i just sounded way too calm and i had no energy so i'm I'm trying to figure out how to keep my energy levels high while i'm by myself have a conversation with by myself not let myself ramble sort of keeping up with the podcast while also figuring out a way to innovate it so we'll see i'll see you on the other side for our little chat to pop your popcorn Let's get into it. No drink again. Sorry. Hello, we are back. I hope you enjoyed your popcorn. I hope it was nice and buttery or salty or however you like it. I like the popcorn in Spain. I miss the Spanish palomitas. They're so good. Anyway, that's my favorite popcorn. My favorite popcorn is from the Alimentaciones in Spain. Where's your favorite popcorn from? Let me know. I'm here to just give you my thoughts now because yes, ghost stories, spookiness, let's see. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay, and I guess to start, if it's not fresh in your mind or if you haven't seen it, which again, I really encourage watching it and I really encourage listening to episodes where you are watching a movie or you've seen the movie because i think that'll definitely be a, the most rewarding listening experience but anyway for anyone who's listening here's the summary in order to escape her stepmom gorgeous and her six friends from school prof kung fu sweet fantasy mac and melody go to visit her aunt in the japanese countryside over summer break Upon arriving, inexplicably supernatural events begin to occur, and their lives are immediately threatened. The house kills them one by one, and they realize that Gorgeous's aunt died during the war, waiting for her fiancé to return, and her spirit inhabits the home and eats unmarried girls that enter. The house eventually does kill them all, except for Gorgeous, who the aunt's spirit possesses. The next morning, Gorgeous's stepmom arrives at the house and she burns her away. So I just wanna start off and talk a little bit about the very unconventional framing and camera angles that seem sort of in your face with how absurd they are, especially in the beginning. It's sort of dreamlike and almost nostalgic in a way. I felt like I was just hit with this wave of almost forced nostalgia because I wasn't actually watching it feeling nostalgic, but I was like, oh, this is something that is meant to be nostalgic. It's very on the surface. And again, like he intended, it does sort of have this this very childlike nature to it, almost as if it were made by a child because he does invoke these bizarre circumstances that might only be thought up by a child, and nothing is ever as it should be. Everything's always a little off. Everything, whether it's an animated background as they're going in the countryside on the train, or the inexplicable supernatural events, or even just the beginning, the introduction of the characters, something just feels out of place. And nothing ever feels like it fits within its genre. Everything, the, the sort of melodramatic moments don't feel completely in the natural, but then the comedic elements within the horror, there's just a lot of contradictions and juxtapositions. And I remember when I was watching it for the first time, actually, it felt like some sort of highlight reel or advertisement. With its quick, snappy shots and bright effects, obvious sets, I felt like I was being sold something in a sort of satirical way, or I don't know, like a parody or something. And it it felt sort of American in a way that was. It felt like it was making fun of American things, like or a a, a lifestyle of advertisement and uh, the just consumerism. But I I don't think that was necessarily the intent completely upon doing the research on the history but that was that was the first time I watched it years ago that's sort of the feeling that I walked away with but it does make sense after learning that he started his career in making commercials because the beginning especially as they're introducing the characters did feel like these small advertisements and like I said I assumed it was making fun of American tropes at first but really it is also he does have this background in commercials and so again it's sort of this mixed media i don't know i guess this sort of like pioneer of mixed media yeah everything is sort of it's just like a big collage and the music is melodramatic to me it felt sort of twin peaky in like a way where it's dreamy and weird you don't really know how to feel but suddenly there's just this really dramatic music that's how I felt like everything just yeah like I said everything feels out of place there's no realism spatially or temporally but it has clear roots in formalism and really values editing sorry Bazan this one is most certainly not for you I mean I like to think that Bazan had an open mind but who knows but yeah editing is actually the star of the, the film and it's not meant to go unnoticed by any means because editing is a star, but it's also, it's a star because it's so clunky in a way that feels really intentional. A lot of, it's very pastiche with references to old conventions, references to different movies. For example, there's this one scene with a movie reel and the, we're sort of watching it with the girls, sort of the subjective movie reel and in that sense it's it's super self-reflexive but mostly it's super playful it's just like a really fun movie that plays with the medium so the editing and effects are absurd but they're careful and they're manual as we talked about or as I talked about he didn't actually know what a lot of the effects were going to look like until after he saw the film for the first time so again it's it's an experiment with the medium that generates a spectacle that's actually not always easy to access. Where does it sit? Where do we access it? Can we access it? Is this even something that's meant to be analyzing in the way that I am? And I don't know, are we even supposed to? It's super inventive. But I think think where we maybe can is the fact that it opens up these we can connect to sort of this more emotional side of it. The side that connects more to history and to historical trauma and to intergenerational trauma. Because Obayashi opens up different dimensions with the film. Something that I think is pretty unique to the medium. He uses house to access the past, the present, and where they connect again somewhere in between i said again because last week if you watched the episode about el espiritu de la colmena we talked a lot about the in between our world and the spirit world but also the in between us and movies in the screen obayashi's drawing on the past of cinema on the past of japanese cinema with the girls and their archetypal names and personalities drawing upon classic personalities popular in japanese cinema and It lives in this space where artistry and entertainment coexist beautifully with its really attention-grabbing visual style. But again, it taps into the past, both on the surface with this visual style, this sort of collage, mixed-media nature of it, but also, again, where I think it becomes most accessible to audiences or the part that we want to lean into the most because we like making sense of things has to do a lot with the house the sort of historical part of it the trauma aspects the horror even though i wouldn't say the scariest part is the actual horror story because of the fact that Obayashi simultaneously employs and subverts horror tropes. He refuses audience expectations and uses the trope of a personified haunted house and an evil abject single woman and also these and then there were nun style killings to draw us in. But then once we're there and he reels us in, All of those things are sort of rejected. We can look at some of these things, especially within the horror genre, because the house is usually a symbolic structure. It's impossible to understand and completely rationalize his use of the house. And the aunt is, again, this sort of abject, evil woman who is gross and off-putting as she kills and interacts really closely with death. She eats eyeballs, she eats the girl, and then she dances with skeletons. So we are drawn into this trope that we can expect, but then it's sort of thrown back in our face. And it's really, really carefully crafted, but it's also hard to take it completely seriously. And there are some parts of it that feel like this, that's feel like something that's just carefully plucked from our subconscious from, I don't know one of our wildest dreams and then projected onto a screen. I think he did nail that part of it. It's like a I don't know, it's like a surrealist wet dream I don't know, I feel like trying to make too much sense of it feels a little sacrilegious actually I just, I think of, not that I live to please Louis Spoonwell in any way. But I do wonder what he would think about this, and I do wonder what he would think of trying to make sense of everything. So he does engage us. He does engage us that way. He engages us by drawing upon these these tropes that we find really satisfying, that we're used to. I don't know, I think he walks a fine line between satire and our obsession with these types of themes. I think one, one point of access into what he's making fun of is the way that this is something that can that is so visual, that's so, such a spectacle, it's so on the surface. And he interrogates a lot of these themes by calling on our obsession with them, and also our obsession with beauty and youthfulness, and actually presenting a serious message about solitude and having loved ones taken from you, especially within this war context. And he interrogates this theme by simplifying the girls to concern about marriage. Then, meanwhile, the film itself refuses to give in to our formal and aesthetic expectations, and it doesn't give in to this simplistic narrative. It's about the younger generation experiencing historical trauma. They're in this old house with these spirits literally haunting them. It's a visual demonstration of that, of that haunting spirit and then making sense of it. They're haunted by the past. The cat and the ant are from the past and they are now immortal beings. The cat lives on in a photo on the wall. He lives on with his green little laser beam eyes that possess people, it seems, and yeah, the ant's body has been separated from her spirit. And I think that is something that's really interesting the way he strips elements of their physicality and makes the historical symbolic and ever present. It's sort of this separation between meaning and form on its most abstract level, I guess. And the cat's eyes become the source of evil, and the house's possession is passed on through the generations because now Gorgeous embodies the ant and her youthful glow and she and the cat's little green eyes that flash and then she embodies the trauma, they embody the trauma, they experience something that was once, it's this combining of a duality between the physical world and the more spiritual or symbolic world because this trauma literally does eat these girls, the house eats these girls and it's so it's it's simultaneously about the embodiment and the immateriality of trauma and it's a, the marriage of the two it's the space where those two things dance and the ant was left alone by the war and it takes a really strong anti-war position in that sense just talking about the ant and her loneliness she's trapped by the war but she's also waiting for marriage and the other girls are taken by the weight of that expectation too it's about loss and absence and the way that's all-consuming, but one of the scary parts is is the way that these girls are also trapped in almost in convention, I guess. And they're young and naive, and they're driven by the fear of not marrying, and they have this innocence and purity, and there's vulnerability in their youth and naivete, and they're in their little schoolgirl uniforms, and their innocence is something to be captured and taken advantage of. And as the film goes on, they're gorgeous, for example, is putting on makeup and there's a topless scene. And so there is this haunting theme of marriage and convention and giving in to that too. I think a big thing is the weight of the expectations on these girls between marriage and also this historical trauma and it's these young girls navigating this dark and complicated world and they are eaten alive by their own stereotypes or their own archetypal things the the piano eats melody a watermelon is the reason mac dies who they constantly make fun of for overeating so they are sort of (laughs) killed by the weight of themselves and then also the spirit and this house and so there's this making fun of and playing with tradition and the horrors of that and then also another level of the horrors of the war and then there's this level where it's this like it's this really playful fun movie (laughs) and it's this wild adventure and it's absurd and it's fun to watch with other people it's fun to laugh at it's fun to gasp at it's fun to just feel it feel it all and give in to its absurdity because it is absolutely absurd but it's a really cool movie and it's a really cool historical moment that we're talking about and it's a monumental ghost story it's a ghost story that you never thought you needed to see if you haven't seen it but you actually do need to see it and it's gonna blow your mind so I recommend House. House is a wild little journey. I tried to keep that as brief as possible. And I wish I could discuss it in live time with someone. But I can't. And yeah, I love movies. And I think that's just my biggest takeaway from this podcast and from everything that I do here. I love movies and I'm just just trying to figure out how they fit into my life. Anyway, don't need to rant about my, my early 20s existential crisis of the moment, but I'm sure many of you are experiencing that too. So, anyway, ayuame, and I'll see you in our next. Oh, right, rating. Oof. God, I'm pretty sure I gave the other one four and a half okay if i give the other one four and a half taking everything into consideration whatever can i take, like okay i'm not saying this is my rating of this movie in general but within this chapter and also comparing it to spirit of the beehive i'm going to give it uh i'm going to give it 3.8 stars if that's allowed are we allowed to go in between halves i don't know but yes this is 3.8 stars for me And yes, thank you, Obayashi, thank you, Japan, for your beautiful cinema, and I will see you in the next episode. Goodbye.